Welcome to Build and Learn. My name is Colin. And I'm CJ, and we are excited to sit down with Alan Treve today, the founder and CEO of Ngrok. We're going to talk about the future of software development. We're going to talk about how Ngrok is solving all of your problems and abstracting away the tricky parts of networking and building your application. Talk about global ingress and lots of other fun stuff. So let's get into the episode. A lot of our clients were like, hey, we have Salesforce and we have these new iPhone things that came out and we want an app that's tying into our CRM and our CMS. And so it was doing a lot of early webhook stuff, a lot of PubSub hubbub and like integrations and getting into ultimately what brought me into Techstars was we were trying to build what eventually became like Zapier, a little bit more like a SendGrid for integrations though, or Twilio, like you drop us into your code base and Turns out you have to raise a lot of money for people to want to drop an entire integration framework into their code base. But yeah, mostly a lot of the things that you guys have run into with like webhooks.fyi and things where it's like everyone does this differently. And so we're going to make the one API that standardizes all of it. And turns out in 2012, you, it just wasn't the same as it is today. And now you have like APIs coming out that are trying to do this again like Merge and Finch and all these different apps that are going after. These are all the payroll APIs. Here's one API to do all payroll APIs. We were like trying to do all of them and it was just a lot. And I think that's where I, I've been in the webhooks Google group since whenever at first, whenever Jeff started that. So it's, I've just been like on the edges of just watching message passing on the internet. Just still the same, still happens. Still hasn't, <laughs> hasn't changed too much. Yeah. Do you know Jeff? Just a little bit. We've got some like shared co-working background and webhooks and things. Yeah, I worked yeah. with Jeff back at Twilio. Yeah, it's interesting. That's it's definitely interesting what you're talking about of building an API that like covers up a bunch of APIs. It's kind of like the industry creating a standard or someone in the industry trying to create a standard API. I'm pretty skeptical of those. I think if you look at technologies like Terraform, where it would have been really easy for them to say, there's a storage bucket resource and we'll abstract it over GCP and Azure and AWS. And they like explicitly chose not to do it because I think they recognized, and I think a lot of other people have recognized that it is very, very hard to abstract around those APIs. It's incredibly hard you need something yeah. to be like almost purely a commodity and very little differentiation before that thing starts to make sense and most of those services are trying to differentiate and so they all come out with what makes them different and then you're like exactly Great, another... so you're not aligned right um right which is which is interesting as well even with yeah. even with standards like oauth right like i assume you're running into that now trying to build like the oauth pieces to the NGROC infrastructures. Oh, yeah, we want to do OAuth, but everyone does it just a little bit differently with little different scopes and a little different like data you get back and a little bit of different. Is it in the header or is it in like the response or whatever? Yeah, just trying to paper over that seems impossible. Yeah, it's interesting just for those listening. NGROC has added some recent capabilities where you can basically put OAuth in front of anything that you expose via NGROC. Basically, tell them put Google in front and it will OAuth or redirect you to Google. Back. We've implemented a number of different providers for OAuth, and you're right that it's interesting. The OAuth spec is mostly followed by everyone to the point where, like, 
can pretty much build the same thing and it works for everyone. The place where all the providers differ is around things that the spec very explicitly says, this is not our problem, right? This is implementation defined. And so like you go figure it out. And so that makes sense that everyone like has diverged there into like slightly different ways. And for the identity piece, of course, like a bunch of folks got together and said, cool, let's standardize the scopes and the, the thing that's returned into what has become OConnect on top of OAuth. But even within this, so like within the spec, yes, there are some places where it definitely differs a little bit. The place where we saw the most deviation from the spec was codes. Air codes are the least no. well-followed thing in the spec. They're the place where the spec says what is correct mm -hmm. or like what is to be expected and the mm -hmm. least people actually implement it correctly. Whereas scopes, everyone does a different thing, but the spec says you can do whatever you want with scopes. They're entirely yours to define. So that makes sense. But the air mm -hmm. codes are one where the spec has some opinions and is still tremendously well thought. I watched some of your talk at that conference about error handling. Yeah. And I'm curious if this was like part of it, but basically that like, I feel like errors are so often just like a, a second, I don't know. It's like a last it's minute thing that, yeah, it's an afterthought and devs try to throw it in like at the last second. Oh, let's add some error handling, whatever. But the reality is that they should be treated as a first class citizen, the same way you're treating a return type or whatever from any method. It's one of the things that I'm most proud of about the internal architecture of NGROC is our air handling system. Every, I think I talked about that in the talk from that conference, but I don't go into quite a lot of detail there, is every single error that NGROC returned, every one of them, every, sorry, user-facing error, something that we expect a user to see, has a unique error code that is defined in like, we have a essentially like a big manifest where every single error that the product returns is defined in there which is, at this point, thousands, right? And so there's a unique code for everyone. And our system basically, like, reads that manifest and then, like, code generates type-safe bindings to all the different languages that we use internally uh, for folks to spit out errors that use that particular format. It's really meaningful because those the things that are returned are objects that are specially annotated. So you know that they're user-facing error codes. So all the error handling can treat them differently. There can be special metrics around them. And really, really beneficial from a you know, from a product management standpoint of like you can go and like into our observability and you're like, what people, what's the error people hit the most? Cool. We know, right? Like we absolutely know exactly what that is. We know the biggest stumbling block to using the product. If you think about like growth or just user experience, understanding what what people are doing wrong is, is super helpful. The other place where it really provides a tremendous amount of benefit is from a customer success, customer support standpoint of what we're trying to do there is make sure that when people write in, there's nothing more frustrating than getting an error report where someone's, it doesn't work. And here's vaguely the error that I got. And you're like, I can't help you. Like, I have to like send you a bunch of emails to ask you like how to duplicate it. And please tell me. But when people Something send us an error code, yeah. we know exactly like the line of code where like they they encountered the error, which is really beneficial to looking quickly to problem. So a couple couple of huge benefits that way. And the last one is really developers, like when we encounter an error message, like what is the first thing that you guys do? You copy and paste that thing into Google and you're like, 
what what shows up. And we wanted those things to be unique strings that you could put into Google that no one else on the internet would have. So you put them into Google and we get back like our air pages where we can do like the best documentation and tell you exactly like what went wrong, how to help yourself get out of that's awesome. Yeah. I think a lot of people think of like an API or software as like having a contract and we think about all the things that can go right, but we don't spend as much time thinking about, like you just mentioned, the error codes, the contract of what happens when something's wrong. How do we help write a guide or even just include the information in the error itself on what what is missing, what needs to happen next? Having written lots of APIs, it's okay. If I'm trying to create something, what do we send back if you're missing data? What do we send back if it's already been created? Like obviously we have HTTP status codes and things, but even those can be pretty vague at times and you got to come up with these like first class error objects. I know some APIs and client libraries do a really good job of this. And it's obvious that you guys have a high, high bar for that developer experience when you do that. Since we're just jumping in here, I would love to just set the stage for people who might not know what NGROC is. I think most people are familiar with it for things like local ingress for I have a Rails server running on port 3000 and I want to add that to the web. I want to expose that to, to receive webhooks or maybe I want to have a preview app so that CJ can go hit this endpoint and view the app that I'm running. Um, but what would you add to that? What does NGROC look like today and what are developers using it for? Thanks so much for that intro. That's really helpful. Yeah, Ngrok, that's definitely where Ngrok started, was about where we started was webhook development and testing. I started my professional career at Twilio, one of the companies on the forefront of using webhooks to drive behavior. And just, it was a frustrating experience to develop with, develop on that platform if you couldn't get those webhooks directly to things that were running locally. Over the years, what we, what we found and discovered was if you think more broadly about that problem that Ngrok was solving, Ngrok was creating ingress to your local machine, right? It was accepting traffic from the internet and it was routing it to the application that was running on your laptop. But that's really just one specific problem in a more general problem, which is how do I get traffic from the internet and send it to my application running anywhere, right? It could be running on my laptop, it could be running on Raspberry Pi. It could be running in a container in a CI job for 30 minutes, or it could be running in production, serving I don't know, all of reddit.com or whatever it happens to be. But like fundamentally, the problem of getting traffic in from the internet and routing it to your application is the same, no matter, sorry, it is different, but the kind of like fundamental primitive that you use to do it is the same. I interestingly, I guess I'll walk that back a little bit, is that, that what's happening is very similar. But the tools that developers have to use to actually make it happen in those like four different scenarios that I outlined are all wildly different, right? And that's really where we've moved Grok over time is to start handling this production traffic to being part of your production infrastructure, your CI infrastructure to create ingress to your applications, no matter when or how or where they're running, it doesn't matter what platform or any of that. It's very frustrating for developers to have something that works in development and not being able to take it to production, have to like invent something entirely to get there. And that's really what we're, we're trying to solve for folks. Yeah, it seems like the messaging that, I think a lot of people are still thinking when they hear NGROC, they continue to think of like, how do I build a local tunnel to my machine? But I think the key 
sort of message that I have heard, like the shift is, oh, NGROC isn't just for local development anymore. Like NGROC can be used anywhere to do this global ingress to your application. So you can like uh, stop worrying about your whatever reverse proxy solution that you're cobbling together instead. Is that accurate that you could think of NGROC, maybe the way that I think of it as another way to do the same thing that Nginx might do? And obviously, as someone who wants to spend time building on the web, I am not fiddling with <laughs> DevOps. Like, I actually hate Nginx just because it's such a pain to, to get everything right. And so, yeah, just it, how can we think about NGROC relative to a tool like Nginx? That's a really good intro. Yeah, what we're calling NGROC is ingress as a service, right? It is, it is that piece of getting traffic into your network and or into your application and basically running it as a globally distributed service for you. You were asking about Nginx. It's interesting. That is, if you're like putting applications out on the internet, that is certainly a piece, right, where that you're using to do it. But you often have a number of other pieces, right? You're layering in front maybe a content delivery network. You're maybe layering in front some kind of DDoS protection. You may be layering in front some kind of like caching proxy. You might have an identity aware proxy to do some piece of authentication for you. You often have like layer four firewall rules. You have IPs and TLS certificates and maybe an integration with Let's Encrypt. And the list goes on where you're like, as a, I remember being baby application developer, like back in the day and learning Apache and then Nginx to put my web applications on the internet. And just being frustrated that it was something that like, I didn't want to learn mm -hmm. and I didn't like, it wasn't like core to the thing that I was doing that I wanted to deliver, which was the application. And that's really the power is like, we're, NGROC is talking about collapsing all of those into a unified layer that is tremendously developer friendly for you to basically put your application on and on the internet in a way that you want, secured in the way that you want without you having to worry about all of those low level pieces. The analogy that we've been using is that to put applications on the internet, you're working with like the assembly language of networking. You're really working with a lot of these low-level primitives like DNS and TCP and IPs and TLS certificates and things that as an application developer, like you don't really care about, right? You want a domain with, you know, an HTTPS certificate in front of it to receive the traffic closest to your customers and maybe enforce some policies and authentication and things like that. But the infrastructure to run it and the configuration to run it should be a lot simpler than it is right now. And we're what we think we're doing at NGROC is really building that high-level language to abstract that assembly. I feel like there is a trend in modern development where it's, let's give you these drop-in tools or drop-in components that replace like a lot of work that you otherwise would have had to do. So on the, for the Stripe example, you're getting these embeddable payment components where you can just drop in some React component and that will give you these secure iframes that will handle lots of like validation and collecting different payment method types and localizing. And it's like offloading a lot of the work of collecting payment to Stripe. And in this case, it's like offloading a lot of the network level things to NGROC where you can just install this agent, set up some connect handlers and it seems like you've got Go and Rust, and I saw some hints of maybe JavaScript coming soon. So it's a couple of lines that you add when you're setting up your server that's going to listen. And then from there, NGROC will handle 
abstracting away or offloading like all of this other complexity. And one of the things that I'm like curious to double click on is the, the, I think you call them points of presence maybe, or the global, globally distributed concept here. And like, how should we think about that relative to like edge functions or Dino deploy or like having, yeah, having your, your, uh, your application deployed to the edge versus having ngrok ingress happening at the edge and then routing that to some server that might be living in Virginia or Washington or something. That's a good question. You're right. We've built the Go and Rust SDKs. We're working with a couple of other ones. Those are a more modern way of using ngrok that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with where you're basically embedding ngrok directly into your application. You have this, if you're like used to using it, you used to have a separate executable that you would download. And now you have a library where you basically uh, ask ngrok and it returns to something that looks and feels exactly like a socket object, but it's not listening on a local port. It's listening on all of our global points of presence all around the world. In terms of like how to think about it versus edge functions or like deploying your application to the edge, what I would say is when you're building an application, sometimes deploying applications to the edge makes sense. And sometimes like having them not deployed to the edge makes sense. Deploying them to the edge comes with basically puts you in the space of as soon as you have to talk to storage, you have the problem mm -hmm. of cool, have a globally distributed storage problem. Really, I think where we're going to end up is there are two possible futures there. One is one in which like our storage layers become so good that we can run our entire applications like fully distributed at the edge and like all of the synchronization problems happen in like this global storage layer, right? Of what is like the next iteration of something like Spanner? And is it good enough that we can commoditize it and give developers really simple APIs where they can just call this stuff anywhere around the world and give them hopefully the right APIs to make. Because you know, even with a system like Spanner, you still, the application developer is making the like the kind of like cap theory trade-offs, right? Of, do I want consistency? Do I want availability? Are they tolerant? That's one world. The other is that we think about applications being a little more amorphous in terms of being able to be split between an origin application and a piece of it that it pushes out to the global edge. And like right now, I think a lot of developers are thinking about those in like separate ways. But one of the things that we're really excited about things like the NGROC SDKs allowing you to do is you can specify a lot of the configuration in those SDKs and they get pushed to our global edge. And that's something that's like a stark contrast to like setting things up with a technology like Nginx or something like that, in that the application in our world has control over the edge, right? It has a defined API. To say like when I come online, like the the reverse proxy, the ingress point, is an extension of the application. I have an API to set up and control that in the way that I want, and I think that will get us into a world where applications can push configuration and logic, basically having like pieces of Blossom or stuff where they're like, yeah, you can execute this out at the global edge because it doesn't require like stateful handling or requires a minimal amount of local state things like that. And so we're, we'll end up giving developers a little bit more of a seamless experience where they have the control to basically decide this stuff runs there and this stuff runs here. Got it. So you can terminate SSL and you can do your authentication checks and you can do some basic things at the edge. And then once you've handled that, then, and when you're ready to talk to the database, then you could like, all right, now we'll make the trek, the TCP trek all the way across the internet 
and talk to the underlying the underlying application server. Yeah, that that may be the right model. It may not be the right model. It's a little hard to say at at this point. But I think it's like one of those two models or like a hybrid of them where you're pushing like some control out there. Because like at the end of the day, you're just making these trade-offs about, you're just making distributed systems trade-offs, right? Have you guys like in your development, it sounds like we were talking a little bit at the beginning about the kind of development that you're doing. CJ, you said you were doing a lot of kind of like web application development, a lot of backend stuff, things like Ruby on Rails, but also some front-end pieces. Colin, you said you, you've been doing some similar things as well. I'm curious to both of you like have that experience of working with with those kind of of like setting that stuff up yourselves, or did you end up like working with other people who would set those things up for you? For me, it was usually I'm the one on a team like for consulting and things like that. Before I was at Orbit, it was not having an infrastructure or DevOps team, so I was doing everything myself. And you really get to learn and appreciate like all the things that not only do you have to learn them once, but you have to learn them for each cloud provider or each infrastructure stack that you're working with. So the, and then you end up feeling like you're learning this stuff over again each time, or there's like a small differentiation that makes this one better than the other one that you used to use. And so I do like that idea, like standardizing it. Cause we're seeing a lot, uh, it'll be interesting to see like a lot of things have been being automated, I guess is the right word, but like with GitHub Copilot and LLMs, like everyone's so excited about the idea that we're going to not have to write every line of code anymore, but it's, guess what? There's now even more infrastructure and more tools and more stuff in between those apps that we have to deal with. There's definitely a lot of tools that I'm starting to see that with like secure data transfer and stuff like that. I definitely don't want to do that myself. If you were to build an app like a WhatsApp today and having like end-to-end encryption, between two people talking back and forth, that might be a product someone builds today. Like what tech stack makes sense there? It's not quite the same thing that we're talking about today around local tunneling and things like that, but it is a very similar thing where it's, let's say GitHub Copilot's helping me build a chat app with like sockets and things like that. You're in, you're probably building a very insecure chat app to start or internet of insecure things would be the other way to think of it as like a lot of things get shipped with not a lot of thought around the security piece of it. And so I'm really excited to see like what things we can do to help automate and re reapproach those things so that they don't have to be scary. I think like I try not to do the DevOps stuff these days. I think the jokes of DevOps engineer more than DevOps. It's <laughs> like, what check, what one thing did I forget to look at? What one, one setting did I forget? that I'm thinking that I'm secure, but like the front door is wide open, even though I followed like this long list of security and ingress like checklists. To give some people nightmares, I think back in the day, I would go on DigitalOcean, spin up a droplet and then just SSH into it and manually set up Passenger and Nginx and Apache, like all these things and like immediately started getting hacked. <laughs> like just started to get pummeled by spammers and whatever. And then... If we rewind even further, I remember setting up like on Windows Server, like setting up IIS to like open up certain ports so that they can like talk to different applications and someone re goes down into the basement and restarts the physical machine that was running Windows Server. <laughs> it's okay. We've come a long way since then. And even back pre, this is pre and Ngrok, I'm sure it was like 
oh, if I want to show someone my local running web application, I'm going to log into my lo my router and set up NAT address forwarding so that I can like poke a hole in my home router so that people can hit my on port 8080 or whatever. So I think most recently I've been really depending a lot on tools like Heroku and tools like Vercel to manage most of that. And like more recently using things like Cloudflare to provide these really fancy SSL termination things where I can have wildcard domains and set up all of this, I don't know, more advanced infrastructure for building a platform. But for the most part, yeah, it's been one of those things where I've been bitten so many times by building insecure services that I now try to just stay in my lane and build tools closer to the front end than, than, yeah, than I thought that I could back in the day. I don't know. Maybe, maybe now I can just drop in in Grok Ruby and depend on the security. Let Alan do all the heavy lifting of figuring out how to not get tech. That's really what we want folks to do. We, the reason, the kind of like engineer that I've been for a very long time and the thing that like really has always made me excited is about building tools and platforms and infrastructure for developers so that there's nothing more exciting than for me than like solving problems and watching developers like never have to deal with them ever again. And that's that ethos is really what started Ngrok and it's what continues it today is, you know, how do we take these problems away so that folks don't have to like think about the things that they definitely don't want to be thinking about. For sure. Yeah, and a lot of us have these experiences of tinkering and learning and I do wonder because a lot of these newer tools make it a little bit harder to tinker. Like it's amazing to be able to deploy to a render a fly, but you're not actually messing with the digital ocean box like you were talking about there. But where do you then learn these things? Because I don't like someone coming out of a bootcamp might learn the application stack, but they're not necessarily getting a lot of time or experience with some of this other stuff. And I haven't seen too many dev like DevOps bootcamps or security boot camps, things like that, because that would even like a finishing school for security, right? It's something that I would take just to know what gaps do I have in my knowledge? Because very similarly, like anything, we used to do a lot of WordPress stuff. Any website with a slash WP dash admin was just going to be added to a list that was going to get attacked at some point. And then you start tinkering around with Apache or Nginx and things like that. But you actually could. It's kind of like tinkering with cars. Like you used to be able to actually work on your car. And today, very difficult to work on your own car. And as we get to EVs and things, it's going to be near impossible to, especially when those cars are mostly software and a whole bunch of batteries. But it'll be interesting to see like where this goes and what sorts of things change. Is there anything that like you're particularly excited about, Alan, as far as like maybe future looking things or not necessarily add in grok or if there's stuff that you guys are cooking up over there oh man there's so much to be excited about today the things that's really excited about is that it's interesting what you said about uh folks don't have they don't someone coming out of boot camp may not learn a lot of those things that's true but maybe that's okay like maybe we're like headed for a world where really that's okay and if you like rewind a little bit you're like most developers like today don't think about like memory management, but we're all like, that's a nice thing. Yeah. Most of us don't really want to think about that. And most of us don't think in assembly language anymore. And like, maybe that's okay too. So I don't know. It, there, there are always these sets of problems that every, everything in, in software engineering is a leaky abstraction when your problem gets thorny enough where you're like, 
gotta go below. I gotta understand like the piece underneath and the piece underneath and the piece underneath. But I think as the industry has matured and our tools and our infrastructure has gotten better, we have gotten to a place where you have to get into those layers less and less just because we've gotten, we've hardened those under, underlying layers and made the APIs to them so much better than they used to be. And I'm optimistic that a lot of this stuff will move in that direction as well. And that a lot of the problems that we solve today of that you would do in like a DevOps finishing school, if one existed, are things that I hope the next generation de developers like never has to think about. And that they're there are a few of us who like spend our time there and that people want to like understand those things, just like if someone like wants to go and understand the details of the Linux kernel, they can. But if they're like building web applications, like they shouldn't have to and we shouldn't expect them to. So I don't know. I'm optimistic and excited about a future where those are those become details that folks don't have to think. So I'm really excited about this new generation of next-gen Heroku folks who are thinking about applications as a service again. And yeah, I'm excited about that. What else am I excited about? A lot to be excited in software engineering. WebAssembly is certainly an area that's obviously really exciting. Obviously, LMs and ML in general are a really cool area to be excited about too. So there's a lot that's going on. One of the things that I've noticed over the last probably two years-ish is that there are a lot of new developers coming online that are building with tools like Replit, where they're actually like building something in the cloud and running it in the cloud. And that is where they're hosting it and deploying it and everything. It's like part of Replit. And so I'm curious if you have any intuition or if you've seen the same thing around like the future of this next gen of developers and will they just, yeah. Do we think everything is just going to be some cloud-based IDE and you just say, go? And then it's running like it for you and anyone can use it. I don't know, especially like they have that ghostwriter, kind of their version of Copilot that's built in. So I don't know. There's some really cool stuff happening over there. This is this is the space of Replit and code spaces and glitch and that kind of like set of tools. They're exciting. In general, I think as an industry, we should be tremendously excited about anything that lowers the barrier to entry to creating new software. And so in general, like that's what we're doing at Ngrok is trying to lower that barrier to entry to like building applications and getting them online. And really excited that you can use Ngrok with platforms like Replit and Glitch and things like that to get yourself this global ingress with functionality that can push out to the edge. But in general, like anything that lets people like lower the barrier to entry and create new software and get more people into to the space being creative and building new stuff. I think that's one of the things that's most exciting about our industry is getting to see all the people experimenting with all the new and cool ways that could potentially build software together. That's all really exciting to me. Yeah, I think we like to geek out on the tools and the processes and things, but ultimately we're doing all of this to build like a product for customers, right? And so sometimes it's, does the customer actually know how we're getting the webhooks delivered to the app? They do not care. They just want the outcome, right? The, if it's a dog walking app, they, or Uber, your Uber driver's showing up, like you want to get a notification when that's happening and they're not worried about what uh, the infrastructure looks like underneath. So I think we, tr we've been thinking in this show in terms of like, how do we build and learn as developers? Like, how do we develop ourselves? Not just, yes, we can go learn new languages and things like that, but it's like, what other things are we bringing to the table? And I think like thinking about product and 
the developer experience all the way down to what error codes do we get? You know, that's the same for a product. If your Uber card just doesn't show up, you can't just say something happens, right? It's gotta be like, why did the car not show up? And what can I do about it? Who can I reach out to? An Airbnb got canceled on me for this weekend. And it was like, you know, you get a text, it's, your Airbnb was canceled. And then you're like, great, now I gotta go follow the, literally the stack trace. So, okay, go click on the link. Let's go open Airbnb. Let's go find out what happened. And that is so far removed from whatever tech stack Airbnb is using under, under the hood. So um, definitely as you're listening to this, remember who you're building for, remember what you're building, like what problem you're trying to solve for and use tools like Ingrok to get rid of some of those things, the headaches, or at least make them standardized so that on the next project you work on, you have a tool that you can reach for sure. Yeah, like I said, I'm excited about any tools and any infrastructure that that make it easier. I think they're all like places for gets more people into software development. It means more people are trying new things. We're as an industry, as a global populace, like the speed of innovation is tied to how quickly can we experiment? Like how many people can experiment? And so as we see like these new technologies and services that lower that cost to experimentation we're getting more shots at building more new and cool things and that's something that we should all be excited about totally yeah i think this also dovetails really nicely with the whole no code movement which we've talked about a lot and i think i when i first thought about ngrok and no code i thought oh there's probably not that many people who are opening up the terminal and running ngrok and setting up a local tunnel so they can do no-code stuff because they're probably using some application somewhere. But the reality is that now that might be part of their stack in some way or another. Okay, we're building this no-code thing with Bubble, but I need, I don't know, I, I need to test something. Yeah, yeah, I need to test webhooks or whatever. And there there was a bunch of like use cases, I think, that I recently bumped into with Ngrok2 where I was like, oh, I want to test something locally, but it needs to have HTTPS and I don't want to have to figure out how to set up my SSL cert. And so I'm just going to try NGROK because I know that it gives me that HTTPS endpoint that I can use instead so that I can go verify my Apple Pay domain or whatever. So I could test like some Apple Pay thing locally. So there's, yeah, I think there's, I don't know, there, there's always going to be like use cases where people who are building cool stuff are going to need these tools, but yeah, it is an incredibly exciting time to be alive. And I also like every time that GitHub Copilot completes anything for me that is like non-trivial or more than a line, I'm just like, whoa, this is so cool. Still, after a year of using it almost every day, it's, it still blows my mind. And uh, yeah, I think it is definitely a really exciting time to be alive for sure. Uh, I, I don't know that I've talked to anyone who's used GitHub Copilot for a year. Do you feel faster when you use it? Oh, yeah, way faster. I think that... So I, I initially set it up in NeoVim. So you don't just have to use VS Code. So if you're using NeoVim, go download TPOPE's GitHub Copilot thing. There's a way to set it up. And it basically like replaced all of my, my sort of dumb auto-completion. And so now it's, it's very good. And I'm now at the point where I'm learning TypeScript, and it helps a ton with TypeScript. But circling back to one of your earlier points about copying and pasting errors, like the errors you get from TypeScript are so, they're, yeah, they're impossible to understand. They're impossible to Google. They're very challenging. So I'm like, I feel like I'm still on the frustrating part of the learning curve with TypeScript, but 
Uh, you're getting the, you're getting some type is not a type errors. <laughs> yeah, or it's always like something is not any. You can't assign something to any because we we have it. We have all of the restrictions cranked like really high, so it has to be. Yeah, all the types have to be very happy with each other. And but yeah, Copilot has been making all of that much much faster. And when I was at Stripe, we were working in lots of different programming languages: Go, PHP, Java, .NET, Ruby, Python. It was, it, we were all over the place and sw context switching between them was sometimes tricky and GitHub Copilot's like, oh yeah, I know that language and I know that language and I know that language. It's like, you know, kind of the, uh, the Rosetta stone for to, to sit there and help you through, okay, what is the syntax for this again? But yeah, yeah. It, it's made, it's definitely made me faster for sure. It's, it's again, like another thing that I'm like really excited about because it fits into that same theme of things that make software development more accessible, right? Things that give, and for those who are, those of us who are already like more seasoned software developers, it gives us leverage, right? To be able to like move faster, build things that otherwise like maybe would have taken us longer. Maybe we have to build a team to build those things. In some ways, a lot of modern software development is constrained based on the complexity of the things that we build. And the complexity of the applications that we build, sorry, like the functionality, like how much stuff like an application can do is constrained by like how complex of, of like a code base you can manage. And we've built like so many of our tools are just about trying to manage that complexity. Like how do we create abstractions so we can hide some of that complexity and not think about it as we like deal with the rest of the problem and like software engineering and management of like building engineering organizations is about like siloing that complexity like within humans and within teams right of like how do we create a team who can own this like problem so the other teams don't have to think about it and technologies like copilot are really exciting because they give everyone leverage which means like the scope of the things that we can all solve together gets larger if everyone can work at higher levels of abstraction i i think of it as like a Kind of a messy compiler that doesn't always do the right thing, right? Or you're like, <laughs> I have an intention and you compile it into machine code, but you're not always right, which is an exciting place to be that we're in this world where we're getting to where I see the scope of the problems that we can create and tackle becoming larger. Totally. And com combining with the other tools, like the other LLM tools, the other day I was just trying to do something with a bunch of unknowns where I wanted to make a video where the video was explaining a code snippet and I wanted all of it to be automated. And so I wanted to be able to just say my input is some code snippet and the output is a video. It like is animated and it brings in the code snippet. It explains what it does with a voiceover and it shows you like all this stuff. Basically like my job as a developer advocate, right? And I was like, chat GPT, how would I build this? Like, how do I animate this? And how would I animate some code showing up? And it just like starts spitting out different like Python blocks using matplotlib and using like these other animation libraries. And then I was like, okay, and now how do I like uh, describe this? And it spits out the description that you take the description. It's like, okay, now go to some other tool. Okay, now make this a voiceover. It gives you like the AI voiceover. And then you're able to cut, it was like an hour of just playing around in a bunch of spaces that I had no idea about what tools to use or how to put things together. And just like between GitHub Copilot helping write some of the code between ChatGPT writing some of the code. It went from nothing to having a prototype in an hour because you can just whack at it in different ways and even copying the error message directly into ChatGPT and it will just tell you like, here's the thing that you got wrong and like, here's how to fix it. And it's been really fun. I don't know, that style of development, like ChatGPT 
is the third like pair programmer in the room with you has been interesting yeah it's almost like brute, brute force development yeah exactly it's really exciting just all of these tools and ways to develop are just really exciting because we're gonna get to see more stuff more, build things more easily i'm really excited building applications on top of all these things absolutely and i think leverage is a great place to end this episode on so thanks so much for thanks. joining us and spending time with us today alan it's been awesome it's been a pleasure thanks for having me as always, you can head over to buildandlearn.dev to check out all the links and resources. We'll drop those in the show notes for you. Thanks so much for listening. That's all, and we'll see you next time. See ya.